HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Kwatema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We normally broadcast live from a studio at Roberts in Bushwick, Brooklyn, but our studio is currently closed due to the outbreak of coronavirus, as everywhere else in the world. So we are recording this episode remotely from my apartment in Brooklyn. So, uh, this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cook guests. And my guest today is Maribeth Boyler, who is a chef with impressive experiences. She worked under some of the greatest chefs in the world, like Michelle Wu in London, John Joel Van Glichten in New York, and she served as a private chef for the U.S. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy from 2013 to 2017 in Tokyo. And she continues to cook in Japan since then. So today we'll discuss challenges my best came across while she was working as a chef for the American Ambassador to Japan, why she decided to stay in Japan, and when 
uh, when the job was completed, and what's special about Japanese culture for her, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write to our review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any comments or requests for show topics or guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanneeds at theheritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. Now let's start a conversation with Maribeth Boyer. Hello, Maribeth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? Very good. And uh, so sorry that we had to ask you to stay up late because you're calling in from Japan. So oh, that's okay. <laughs> I, I'm usually up this. I'm usually up this late. I'm just not usually um, having an interview this late. <laughs> that's the only difference. I wouldn't be asleep. I just wouldn't be talking to somebody in New York. <laughs> all right. So, so I have many questions for you. So, first of all, uh, where are you from? And uh, what did you eat when you grew up? I was born, I'm born and raised in New York, um, born on 12th Street between 5th and 6th. Oh my, uh, my dad was actually a doctor at St. Vincent's Hospital in the West Village. Um, so born and raised in New York, I kind of always gravitate. I, I would leave and then come back to New York. Um, I went to college in Rhode Island. I worked in London and a couple of uh, locations in France and New Mexico, but I would always come back to New York. So New York is is uh, my home. Although Tokyo is my home, I'm definitely a New Yorker at in heart. Mm. <laughs> um, and I ate very very well. Uh, I'm the youngest of seven. A really great family. I'm super close. Um, we ate pretty basic. I mean, it was a big fa- you know big family. There was nine of us. Um, so it was not always the most adventurous, but very kind of basic. The the protein, the starch, the veg. Um, and by the time I rolled into high school, my siblings, because like I said, I'm the youngest, um, everybody started leaving, going to college and then not returning, or some would return and go to law school or, you know, staying in the house. But um, by the time I hit high school, there was more freedom to go out to, we, we ate out quite a bit, actually. So um, I was really fortunate. <laughs> mm. Wow. So it sounds like you had a basic uh, balanced um, home, cook- home cooking and also you discovered all those New York City dining scenes. So sounds perfect. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, perfect. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't always the healthiest, uh, you know, in the 70s, 80s. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, I certainly can't complain. We, we, were, we were well fed and I was very fortunate to have been exposed at an early age to some pretty great restaurants, either through my parents or through aunts who um, would take me to, you know, Four Seasons and the Sherry Netherlands, like really cool kind of wow. places. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of fun as a little as a little girl. Mm. I was obsessed with Julia Child and um, asked. For a waffle iron from Santa, so I was kind of a freak. I mean, I was really into food. 
Hey. So, so, uh, but why exactly, you know, you decided going to uh, um, pursue a culinary career? A culinary career? Um, I, I always, I just always really gravitated towards cooking. I mean, I, I started making cookies when I was little and kind of morphed into helping my mom and then helping my aunts cook. And um, like I said, I was really into Julia Child and I, my parents used to buy me her, her cookbooks and I used to watch it on TV, um, her show. And I knew that I wanted to do that, but I wasn't 100% sure when I was in high school. And I was 16 when I went to college. I was pretty young. Um so I went to, uh, I, I have my degree in business. I went to Providence College and I studied, uh, I have, a, you know, a business management degree because I wasn't 100% sure about uh, the culinary field. And I, and I felt like, well, it's a good idea to go get college under my belt. And then when I get out, if I'm serious, I'll pursue it, which is exactly what I did. So when I got out of school, I, that's when I... Um, met Jean-Georges von Gerichten and started working with, he hired me. I, I had never, I had no uh, restaurant experience at all, <clears throat> but he hired me and I started working with him. Wow. So you, you had some personal connection with uh, Jean-Georges or? Uh, not re- I mean, like th- through uh, a man named Mark Sarazan, who was a really uh, amazing guy who owned a, a meat, uh, he owned a bag in Spittler, which was a meat vendor. And he was kind of like the chef broker in a way. And this is, this was, this was late, this was really late eighties, nineties. So he, uh, just through like a indirect friend, that kind of a thing of, uh, my, my father's, physician who also worked with my father. Wow. <laughs> so it's like friend of a friend right. kind of a thing. Thank yeah. You, so it like another French guy, French guy who knew Jean George. Jean George had just uh, opened up Lafayette or was just uh, at the Drake Hotel. And so he connected me to him and he hired me right away. And Right. Well, it sounds like yeah. it's not just, you know, you had a good connection, but it's hard to prove that you're so good. You know, it's Jean George. Anyways, so it's very impressive. Yeah. Well, I wasn't so good. I didn't, wasn't any, you know, I was just very eager to learn and I think really enthusiastic. And I think that's why he hired me. And then, you know, I mean, doors open sometimes easily, but they shut even easier. So, yeah, I mean, if if you... Uh, connections are great, but they only go so far right. if you if you don't put if you don't put the actions behind right. it. And so, you worked also um, at uh, you know the John George with John George, who's a French chef, and uh, the Michel hmm. uh, Michel Wu in London. And yeah, yeah, and I heard also you worked at the Rue Gavroche in London, and I think we the top restaurants. So, what did you learn from the those experiences? Uh, well, I mean, I, I feel like you can learn something everywhere if your eyes are open and if you, and if you're open to that, uh, the Jean George that, again, that was my first, was my first, um, who's my first chef. He was an amazing guy and he was an amazing mentor, um, worked with wonderful people on the line. I mean, I was a little kid, I was a kid and, um, 
the people that were on the line were really tremendous. And I, I had the advantage of go, I went to night school, uh, three nights a week. And then I would come in, worked full time for him and ask a million questions and tell them what I learned. And then they would tell me, Oh no, that's really stupid. Don't do it this way. Do it this way. You know? (laughs) So it was kind of like, so I don't know between the two, it seems like something I learned something. Right. And so the Um, night school was an international culinary center in, uh, in Soho, right? Yeah. It was the French culinary Institute. Now it's the ice or yeah, the culinary. Yeah. They changed it's changed name, so it's a it's a it was a good school, um, and this way I was able to work full time with him. So he he kind of convinced me to change my my original plan was to go to the Culinary Institute of America, and he convinced me not to do that, so I could stay with him. <laughs> so that I mean it, that was a great experience, and then I then because I was working on the line with these really awesome older guys, um, I knew I wasn't going to ever run the station so so to speak so I told him I was bored I you know I just said I, I'm not I can't go anywhere with this so he sent me to France to where he had done his apprenticeship at the Auberge de Lille which is three-star Michelin and um, I worked there and I lived with his family on weekends and um, and then he then I worked at the Hotel Martinez in Cannes uh, so yeah, he was awesome. So he helped facilitate those positions, and he was really supportive in in um, in me learning from other people too, not just kind of holding me near and dear to him, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, because I think that that's a that's a that's a huge thing. I mean, I feel like you can learn uh, from anybody. And it, it was really important to, um, to train with a variety, with a few people, right? because you learn, even if you you know, even if you learn that you don't want to do it one way or the other, Mm -hmm. you know? So, and the Rue brothers were the, the, uh, Michelle Rue was, it was Albert was the father and Michelle was the son. And this, this is Le Gavroche and it was intense. It was the, it was brutal. We, we worked 85 hours a week in five days. Wow. Yeah, but it was awesome. Mm. I mean, it was amazing work, um, incredible pressure, but beautiful, beautiful restaurant, beautiful food, perfect food, perfectly cooked. Mm. Um, you really learned a lot and you learned a lot about yourself and your strengths, weaknesses. And um, you even, I mean, you even learned how you wanted to treat people or how you didn't want to treat people. Mm, that's huge. You know, it was tough. Right. Yeah. It was tough. Right. And at this point, uh, okay. Thanks. So uh, maybe you can just uh, uh, repeat the the important thing uh, you said about uh, learning from other people. Like, no. Well, no, I just said that it's, uh, I have found, and particularly uh, if you're talking about Le Gavroche, um, that you can, you learn about yourself, you learn about your strengths, you learn about your, obviously your cooking abilities, but you're also, that kind of place was a sink or literally like sink or swim or survival of the fittest. It was a very strange place, um, but a great place. And uh, you learned 
more than cooking a lot about yourself and your strengths, weaknesses, and your ability to deal with your coworkers and help and support, and also to how to treat people, whether you agree with the way uh, the kitchen was run or the treatment or or not, you know, it's kind of you. I, I think I, I got a lot. I got a lot mm. out of that. And I've, I'm lifelong friends mm. that were on the line were pretty amazing. Wow. Well, it's almost like uh, in the military or something like you really was. Oh, it was totally. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really great. It really was kind of crazy. I mean, I can write a book just about Maybe that. Maybe you um, should. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then you worked as the executive chef at the legendary dining destination, uh, BG at the Bergdahl Goodman in New York, uh, which is an upscale, highly sophisticated department store. So what kind of, I mean, you now, you moved on. And how did it happen also? What kind of menu did you offer in what kind of style of cooking? Uh, at Bergdorf, Bergdorf, I went there after I had done catering. I was the executive chef at Great Performances, which is a huge catering company in, in New York. And, and then I also had my own catering company and... They had, um, I was approached by a friend who knew that they were uh, looking for somebody at Bergdorf, and I figured that would be an interesting change. So I I started with them, and it was really fun. Um, I had never done that kind of a, I'd never worked in that type of restaurant. I mean, they have, um, I ran their three restaurants, and... It's really it was, obviously it's a gorgeous. It was a gorgeous restaurant, um, and they're very concerned about health. You know, health conscious. Uh, a lot of light meals. We had to do a number of them that were five hundred calories and below. Um, it wasn't so very different from what I've. I previously had cooked or my style, it was kind of, I was fortunate enough to be able to cook my style of food, which was, which was very seasonal and locally sourced. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, um, okay. So just because we have a lot more questions, I, I just wanted to yeah. uh, make sure that so yeah. you, after you left the John George and then uh-huh. studied in France and then eventually you studied your catering business. And then you are yeah. invited to become the chef, and and it's right. it's interesting that now you're the executive chef and managing three restaurants. So based on what you learned, you are you are now the team leader, and it sounds like you've been building your career, even at the point very uh, solidly, and surely, and then you got um, in two thousand fourteen. You left New York to accept the offer to mm-hmm. serve as executive chef and events planner of the U.S. Embassy residence in Japan under Ambassador right. Caroline Kennedy. So, right. how did it happen? I, I, she had been my client for at that point about fifteen years. Wow. Um, yeah, I had spent every summer in Martha's Vineyard cooking for. Um, Ambassador Kennedy and her fam- Ed and the her family. Um, I can't remember when it started, but it was at that point. It at right now it's about twenty years. So it's uh, we met each other. I was hired as their private chef for one summer, and we really hit it off. And it kind of morphed into a great long term relationship where I then. Uh, 
uh, in my spare time would cook dinners for them and then their private events and then their uh, corporate events. Um, it just kind of morphed into a great, very close relationship. And when she was, when she had accepted her position in uh, Tokyo, we talked about me maybe going over and it was <clears throat> decided that she would go over and see what the position was like. You know, I, I said that I was very interested in moving over, but it would have to be, you know, the right circumstance. If it was good for me, if it was good for Ambassador Kennedy, if it was good for the embassy, then we should have a, a further dialogue. So she went off and moved to Tokyo and it took about three months and then she called me and asked me if I would move. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's like, please move over here. Yeah. Um, so I did. And I was, I, it took a while. Uh, you know, so that was, I don't know, that was probably the winter of 2014. And it's not, you can't just up and move. It's, there's a process. So there was, um, a lot of things that you have to do through through the embassy and check, you know, security checks and so forth. But I ended up moving uh, the October 2014, and I was super excited. I mean, I was happy in New York, but um, I felt number one, I love her dearly, um, and so that. But I knew that she would not be kind of throwing me under the bus. <laughs> like that, it had to have been. It had to be a great place. And she, she was so excited for me to join her here um, that it was just sounded, it was just all good. And I also felt that it was a, there was a time limit. So I knew that she would only be here for two years or so max. Uh, so it didn't seem like a difficult decision. Mm-hmm. Um and then it really wasn't until I, I didn't expect to be here as long as I have been, really. Right. So, so, so um, did you have any um, culture shock or language barrier at the beginning? Um, I don't. I don't think culture shock. I mean, I, I like to travel, and I think that it was. Uh, I was. Never, I'm, I'm not intimidated. I don't get intimidated by. You know, I never thought, oh, this is big and scary. You know, I mean, I'm from New York, so it's not. I always think it's very similar to New York, except that you can't read anything here um, <laughs> or understand anything. But um, so I kind of thought of it as fun, interesting adventure. And particularly because I was so close to her um, that I was very, I'm very, very confident that it, it was nothing, nothing intimidating, all good, really all good. I think that the, obviously there's a different culture and I think that there were adjustments for sure. I mean, I, I feel like there is, um, the pace is much slower. The pace of, of business is much slower or movement in general, um, took a little while to get used to. I don't even know if I'm still used. I'm still really not used to it, to be honest with you. Who am I kidding? It drives me crazy. Um, but but um, the, and the language, of course, it's really hard. I'm, I am taking, le- I'll have to take lessons for the rest of my life. I still take them. I have a lesson on Thursday. Um, but I didn't 
I think that if you let that be a huge bummer or scary, then it will be. If you just decide, okay, this is going to be a challenge, but you can deal with it. And I'm not going to let it stop me from anything. Then it's okay. You kind of, you figure out ways to navigate it. I did a ton of, a lot of traveling by myself and I would just bring, you know, be prepared, um, know what you're doing or have a plan, have a little cheat sheet of, you know, certain things that you may need to be able to, you know, have to ask or things written in Japanese that you might want to pull out of your pocket and ask, you know, <laughs> if you if you didn't feel confident enough to say it. So um, I never had a, I never really had a problem. Mm, yeah, I think that's the, the yeah, way. I mean, the heart, if you see it as sorry. a kind of challenge that you can grow out of, then there's nothing so hard in the way. I think it seems like you're enjoying those challenges. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the obvious challenges are the in cooking um, with sauces and things of that nature. Like it's not, I, I'm not intimidated to go to markets and things like, of course, I mean, I know what a good fish looks like. I know vegetable, you know, that kind of a thing. Did the, I think the, layer of difficulty in food would would really be more going to grocery stores and looking at you know 20 bottles of brown sauce <laughs> that just how the hell do you figure out what that is and honestly I was so lucky because I was working for this amazing woman who said okay well buy it buy a bunch of them and just figure it out you know and literally so that's what I would do I I for not you know it's not like I did I didn't go in and buy 100 bottles of different soy sauces and things but I would just experiment and then you figure out what you like and what works and um and I think that's kind of steered the way I cook now because I don't, nobody told me how to cook with any of this stuff. Right. I never really took, I mean, I took a couple of little Japanese lessons, but um, I kind of found some of them really boring because they were very basic. But if nobody's ever told you what certain things are for and you've just opened up the bottle and you've tasted them, then you'll put those things with things that you think they work with not with what the rules are telling you mm, right and then all those you know challenges you're facing and at the embassy in tokyo so you were in charge of planning mm. and designing both large events and intimate gatherings and that reflected mm. the multifaceted relationship between the united states and japan and that sounds very uh, kind of almost overwhelming so what is the most difficult part of the job and how did you manage that um, it wasn't, it's, it does sound overwhelming and it wasn't, <laughs> I mean, I thought it was, I came from very big experience. See, that's what I think. I think that, you know, I, I, when I was the, I was the executive chef at Great Performances, we would do part, we could do 20 parties a day. And one of them could have been the opening for the, you know, Philharmonic and the, get, met and this and that you know it's like so thousands I'm used to cooking for thousands so it was more um I think the challenge was much more it's not that it was an easy job but I think the b biggest challenge or hurdles were um getting locals to accept change mm, right 
I think it's a, I think sometimes that's uh, new things are seen as intimidating. So not so eager sometimes. And, but that's, that's a little bit of a generalization, but uh, there was definitely some of some people that were very stuck in their ways and not really interested in seeing some new and different. But Are you talking that about really... your uh, co-chefs, like team members? No, I think just in general, like the, the, the style of, say, the style of events or they were kind of old fashioned to me and certainly to, you know, Ambassador Kennedy brought me over because she was she wanted to have things that were her style and uh, something that was fresh and new and exciting and cool. And that wasn't really happening there. So it was, that's the biggest challenge was to introduce people to things that they weren't necessarily um, familiar with. And yes, I'm talking about the people that I worked with there, mm. um, the locals, right. not, I mean, obviously the audience, the people that were the guests, they were psyched, right. you know, but, um, so it was just, it's just, and it, it wasn't like it was some crazy large challenge. I think once people realized that, um, change is good, right. then, slowly slowly they were yeah i think in japanese you know. uh, mindset it's it's hard to change something because yeah as you said things move slowly because everybody agrees on something so if you want to change right. everything every has to, it's like a chain right. reaction um, yeah but um it sounds like that the probably the reason that you know the old ambassadors bring their own private chefs is to educate the cultural style mindset through food as hmm. well so i think you did a very meaningful job over there um yeah yeah and i actually was the oh, i was the first one that that has ever been brought over wow wow interesting oh yeah awesome i don't know whether that's good or bad but, it is great um no yeah. yeah i know and uh so, so what was some, maybe you can give us a, an example of most memorable event that you worked on for um, um well there was there were a lot of great ones there are we one of them let's say there was a, a one for five or six hundred for uh the j f k symposium and bill Bill Clinton spoke and he attended so that was kind of a big deal that was also a fell on saint patrick's day which ambassador kennedy it's a big day for carolina right. so everything everything had to be green it was like a, it was pretty funny um but that was that was kind of a neat one and then another one that was really fun was for the uh, governor of kentucky ambassador kennedy had the idea to um surprise him by bringing in miniature ponies she had met when she was in dc for a conference she met a japanese woman who owned two miniature ponies that ha lived in an apartment in tokyo <laughs> only in tokyo right i'm not serious i am totally serious they lived in, in an apartment in tokyo so i met them i met the ponies <laughs> went to their apartment and had little coats of roses created with a local far, um, florist 
so that it mimicked the Kentucky Derby. Oh. <laughs> I'll send you these pictures. It's really hard to explain, right. but it was hilarious. And people, <laughs> people were so shocked. And we brought, I mean, Ambassador Kennedy brought them into the building oh, and it wow. was just really funny um yeah it was kind of it was fun I'll send you the pictures because they really were okay, it was fun. I look forward to it. Um, um yeah yeah and then I heard that you um you fostered what you call food diplomacy through relationships with local vendors and food sources and your contacts with U.S. affiliated restaurants and vendors so could you elaborate on it sure uh, again, this was something that I don't know how strong that um, that was pushed with previous ambassadors, but it was really important for Ambassador Kennedy and and for me, and um, particularly for there's one event a year. It's the Fourth of July event, so it's usually for about sixteen hundred people. And previously, it would just be all about American products. So it would be, you know, McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken. or And I, I, I felt, we both felt like this is not, is that really what we want to do here? And I, it wasn't what I wanted. Well, I'll answer that. No, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So uh, it, we switched it up. So I, we the focus was American products, U.S. products with local vendors. In other words, um, a local uh, taco guy. We supplied him. We asked him if he wanted to participate. And so he produced his burritos in the same way that he would normally do it. But we provided U.S. pork, U.S. cheese, U.S. sour cream. So it was a partnership type mm. thing. Um, local soba producers, we provided buckwheat from North Dakota so that they could create their same traditional method. So it's not like we were saying, here, use this crummy product, really good product that they were able to showcase their wonderful food products. But using a Japanese, I'm using an American um, ingredients. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So it's almost like uh, for food, for good food to be deepened and expanded for its opportunities rather than just nationalize where it should be from. Yeah. Well, I think that it was, I mean, for that, for that, for this yearly event, it works really well. I mean, it's all about, you know, independence and, um, or, you know, the 4th of July, your work, your, your, we're here in Tokyo. Uh, we love our Japanese neighbors. What better way than to take American products, which which because it's the U.S. embassy, you're supposed to be showcasing, but not just throwing American products in everybody's face, but taking those products and working with local small Japanese producers who could, frankly, could use, it's almost like good PR, yeah. you know, so these people were able to um, show their products to uh, uh, an audience of 1,600 people who otherwise would not have seen them. Right. Yeah, I, uh, so. I think it's real cultural uh, exchange. And I see, for example, um, there are sake producers in the States using American-born mm -hmm. native uh, colors rice, which mm -hmm. is really tasty. So 
yeah, that kind yeah. of thing is really meaningful. And uh, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, so to you, well, you mentioned a couple of things about Japanese systems. And so what's unique about Japanese food system? Uh, I mean, Japanese food is just great. I think that it's, uh, for me, there's so many things to learn. You know, um, I feel like it's just never ending the amount of things that I can learn here. Uh, but I think, and I think that there's such a deep respect for food. I feel like, like enough, no other country people just love their food. Like people, it's almost like an extension of their family. It's kind of, it's a little borderline bizarre <laughs> but you know like uh the way somebody might speak about their mekon or their oranges if they're from kyushu or you know you really think that they're talking about their uncle but it's an orange <laughs> you know it's there's this bond i've i had never i've never really experienced anything like that and i've lived in in very food uh centered countries but um yeah i mean there's just I think it's just the the a deeper respect for food. Food is food is everything here. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, the mindset of from farm to table or seat to table has mm. been always there in Japan. So yeah, it's kind of like vertical. The distribution system is really not commercial, but it's more spiritually connected, like you described. Yeah. Right. Okay, and uh, so you have very rich global culinary experiences, like you said. And so France and UK and New York and, of course, in Japan. So how do you call your style of cooking at this point of your life? And uh, what is your culinary philosophy? Uh, my style is, I don't think it's, it hasn't really changed. It's very, you know, I cook local locally sourced food i cook seasonal i cook i think i think it's simple though when i say it's simple a lot of people think i'm crazy um maybe it's not so simple but i think it's relatively simple um not a lot of manipulating or playing with food um i think that it's kind of more it's morphed a bit here in a way because i do use a lot of different japanese products in a western way um, I don't really, I think that the, what I have found here, what I've learned here is that Japanese cooking and correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, many people just follow traditional rules about sauces or mix, don't mix this, or this is what you're supposed to do with this sauce or that sauce or whatever. Um, like I said, I don't really do that. I just, I mix more flavors than um, I think most. So a, a little, maybe maybe you would think a little bit out of the box. Mm. Um, but I think it's fun. I don't think that there, I, I would prefer not to categorize, you know, um, a region or, you know, I don't cook Italian. I don't cook Japanese. I don't cook New York. I just cook what's in front of me and what's, season's best and hopefully it tastes good <laughs> mm, right well that's how uh, the food culture in any place have been developing and it will continue right. to develop so yeah that's mm. amazing and uh do you have any 
signature dish to represent your I don't know about signature dish, but there are some things that I that I tend to um, use often. Like I, I make a dashi broth, but then I I add uh, Parmesan rinds mm. to cook for hours. Wow! Yeah, uh, it's really a, it's pretty. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty yummy, right. pretty tasty. Um, yeah, that makes sense right? because yeah. umami, um, all different kinds of amino acids. They multiply yeah. by merging together. So. Right. I have to try it. Exactly. <laughs> I'll try it. You should try it. And then you should try the other, the combination of, um, I, if you gr- like do a, a frico, like a Parmesan, uh, but then I put a little bit, of, I put katsubushi mm. and I put nori, shredded nori and bake it. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. It's a hands down. It should work. The same idea, right? <laughs> no, it, does, it tastes really good, but that's not something you know. I remember doing cooking for my friends, and and they were just you know they couldn't believe it tastes. They said it tastes very delicious, but it was also as if I had just you know created the light bulb. Like it's not, it's not that. It's just I think it just tastes good, and right. that's why I do it. It's not really not to be pushing anybody's envelope. Right. It's just kind of. It's almost comforting. Well, it's, it's, it makes sense, right? It's scientifically too. So, listeners, it's uh, dashi and the Parmigiano wines, and also the other one is bacon and nori and bonito flakes to make some yeah. stocks. Okay. Um, all right. So, we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll discuss why Mary Beth decided to stay in Japan and what is special about Japanese food culture for her. So, please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu, and Kitare Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats Podcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, no, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, my apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema. My guest today is Mary Beth Boyer, who is a former private chef for the U.S. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy from 2014 to 2017 in Tokyo. So, uh, so Ambassador Kennedy completed her mission in January 2017, but you decided to stay in Japan. So why is that? I had decided uh, probably maybe six or seven months prior to that, um, and I had originally I thought that I would stay at the embassy on a part-time basis. Um, I think we both expected Hillary Clinton to win, uh, which was unfortunate the way things <laughs> went down. I think for everybody in the world, wow. but um, so. I, when I did leave the embassy, I left, we both left January 17th, the day Trump, Donald Trump started. And, um, I thought I'm not 
quite done with Japan. I felt that there was a lot more that I could learn and see and do. So I just looked at my options. I had no job. I had no visa. I had, you know, and tried to figure it out. I started taking more Japanese lessons. I reached out to some people um, and eventually figured it out and started doing a variety of different things. So it's, I mean, I'm really happy that I stayed. I felt like if I didn't, it would have been much easier for me to pack up and leave, go back to New York. I mean, much more, uh, would have been easier and definitely a uh, a solid situation, but I didn't want to do it, and I'm really happy that I did mm. it. Okay, so what are your activities in Japan right now? Um, right now, I am doing a number of different things. I still, I'm still doing consulting. I've I've been consulting for A and I A and A Airlines for a few years. Um, I've done consulting for Mitsui Fudasan. Um, I started to, I did that right. Or I did that about two years ago for a really interesting project. Um, I lived on a Waji Island what? worked with an agricultural group for six months, the mm. farm group. That was really ridiculously yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, I've never been to a Waji Island, but it sounds like it's very kind of special, like naturally. <laughs> It's beautiful. I lived in the middle of a sweet potato farm. Mm. And it was so bizarre, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but really beautiful. Um, I mean, I just kept it. There were moments where I, moments of near madness, you know, <laughs> really, truly. Wow. <laughs> but then I thought, well, I'm never going to do this again. I, I, this is so far from New York. And so just enjoy it. And, and I did, actually. It was pretty great. Um, <laughs> What else? So t- currently, I'm like I'm still I'm still doing the A and A consulting for for them, which is really neat. I just launched a meal delivery service mm. called Noka Soul. Uh, we our our plans are also to open up a fast casual farm to bento concept restaurant mm. uh, in the fall. So that's pretty exciting and. Then what else? I'm also where I've been doing um, some consulting for Jetro. Mm. And actually, just before this horrible coronavirus, I had a group from Neiman Marcus come over and visit Japan. We focused in Saga. I was hired by Jetro and Saga. Yeah, so Jetro, so, uh, well, this uh, is familiar with it, is a Japanese government organization who promotes uh, exports, imports, and businesses between Japan and other countries. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they had hired me to, um, they basically asked me if I would help them uh, come up with some ideas to generate um, more distribution of artisanal products. Mm -hmm. So I thought about it. I went to Saga. I uh, explored a bunch of different places, selected some places that I thought were really amazing um, to f- kind of focus on. And anyway, long story short, um, Neiman Marcus, the head buyer for Epicure and the head of all the restaurants, uh, the VP of restaurants, came over to visit and they loved it. So they loved Japan and hopefully there's going to be a Japan fair in 43 of their stores. Wow. 
That sounds amazing. Wow. So that's going to be really fun. Yeah, I hope, hopefully. I mean, you know, the world is so crazy right now. Well, Japan um, is really in control in terms of uh, the coronavirus. So I know, but um, (laughs) it's not, yeah, I know, but we'll have to say, yeah. I mean, it's great over here, but it's not happening, you know, there's a lot that needs to happen in the U.S., as you know. Um, yeah. So it sounds like a lot going on, and it's, it's, you know the, what's happening in Japan in terms of the food world too. So I'm curious, uh, based on your experiences, um, what is the the food trend among Japanese people right now? And I, for example, I heard that plant based diet is not as popular as in the U.S. Probably because they already have a lot of vegetables in their own hmm. food and on, on a daily basis. So yeah what's the trend i you know honestly i i see more trends i mean there's there's definitely a little buzz about there is a buzz about vegan you know but i don't think it's big like it's not it's not like the states but i do like i have a i have a friend who just wrote a book and there's a there's um there's a little buzz about it um i think more I could certainly speak about trends like uh, food halls, you know, that's definitely, there's two that just, just open up. There's one that's opening up in two weeks, hmm. a tiny one. I don't know how, I mean, it's a tiny space that's going to be tough, but um, that seems to be in the past several years, they have really grabbed onto that um, mm, because food halls that concept. have been very popular in the states like you know the gourmet food halls like uh in new york hmm. city is that kind of thing like really yeah no i'm thinking yeah like uh, like timeout cafe and dumbo for instance mm-hmm. i mean i know i know, can tell you the places in new york and then i can tell you the places that are here that are kind of like i can tell they've seen the places in new york and then they try to do it here right. So I feel like that's the kind of trending. I think that there's, it seems to me that there's a, there's always a spotlight on what's happening in New York or what's, a, uh, you know, what they think, what, what seems to be kind of cool in New York or in the U.S. And then there may be something that um, attempts or tries to mimic it here and sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not authentic at all but um interesting Mm, okay so uh yeah i i'm just very curious that it sounds like a very western idea to have who holds but it's just the more communal idea it's almost like market concept in fancier buildings so that makes sense yeah but when i say food hall i mean you know so it's a number of different restaurants almost like a little not kiosk more than a kiosk but um a step above a kiosk so it's like chelsea market Mm. you know think about chelsea market but on a smaller scale right that kind of thing right or yeah yeah Mm. okay and uh Mm. So uh, you are one of the precious kind of professionals who have highly global perspective about food at this point. So what do you think uh, we should learn from the Japanese food culture and what Japanese should learn from other food cultures? Um, I think there's so much to learn from Japanese food. I think that there's, I think there's, 
I think it's almost, a sh it's a real shame that people don't know more about Japanese food or Japanese products. I, I think it's a real shame that um, it's, the products aren't easily accessible mm. in cities like New York. I think, and I know that there are Japanese stores and you can get some stuff, but uh, a lot of the stuff is mass produced and I'd love to see a larger variety of the small artisanal products make their way right. into the hands of people. And I think that um, there needs to be kind of teaching and explaining what things are. And again, I think that they could do exceptionally well with Japanese products, even kind of maybe some funky artisanal products if they are brought to the consumer in a really um in a way that educates people about the product and in a way that uh eliminates the intimidation factor of how to use and what the products are mm -hmm. because then people are will be much more apt to give it a try and embrace them. And it's can, the same can be said for, uh, say, U.S. products here. I actually did, I worked for the California Olive Oil Council for a while, and it was, the idea was to try to um, introduce small batch olive oils to consumers here. And people didn't know what to do with it. You know, if you don't really know that certain olive oils are not for sauteing, they're just for finishing or things like that, like you have to kind of explain that certain things can, you know, you basically, you just have to teach people that, um, right. how to use things and how not to be Keeping things in the, again, I think it's more about uh, thinking out of the box and making things, adapting things mm. and different products into your comfort zone. Right. Well, the, the, now the information is available over the internet, but I know that like small Japanese artisanal small producers um, say go to, um, you know, the fancy food show in New York or those like yeah. very um, limited outlet they can introduce their yeah. products to the world that's really frustrating and i i am <laughs> very frustrating which is why i was so i'm so excited about the whole neiman marcus opportunity if that really does you know I, I do hope that that um works out because that in and of itself will be able to bring over um some really fantastic products and put it on a platform that wouldn't have exist, wouldn't normally be there, right. you know, for those kind of consumers that um, will be okay with trying something a little new and different. Nice. So, I mean, I think that that's a pretty, that whole, I really am very excited mm. about that. Oh, please do keep me posted. I'm very interested in that. I will. <laughs> I will. Right. So uh, what are your plans? My plan, my plans are to keep keep on keeping on. You know? <laughs> it's sort of like I can't come back. I can't go back there. I would love to go. I, I mean, I, generally, I go back to the 
states i have i've been lucky enough to go back every summer this is going to be the first summer that i'm here um for the duration so uh you know i'm busy working on my new projects this um it's busy. I'm busy, but I'm missing my family. Yeah. That's the bottom right. line. Originally, so we were it's supposed hard. to record this episode in the studio, so nothing didn't happen. Exactly. Well, that that wedding was canceled, obviously, and that. But but I keep thinking, oh well, I'll be able to go in August, and then it's like, oh well, then I'll be able to go in October. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's it's depressing. So it you know right. That's for now. I'm here. Hopefully everybody stays healthy and this thing gets under control and then we can travel with a little more freedom. I mean, my plan is to stay in Tokyo, even pre pre Corona, the plan is to stay in Tokyo, stay in Japan, but working on these um, certain business opportunities that will allow me to spend more time in the States because I really, uh, do need to go back there more often well sounds like you're really becoming an ambassador by yourself so congratulations (laughs) i don't know about that i see it (laughs) yeah so where can we find your updates online uh well you could my website which is uh marybethbowler.com m-a-r-y-b-e-t-h-b-o-l-l-e-r Dot com and the company that we just started um, myself and my partner who's a Korean woman who owns five F&B uh, establishments in Seoul um, our business is called Noka Soul N O K A S O U L dot com okay great all right so yeah. uh Good luck with everything, and hopefully, eventually, we'll see you in person at the studio again. I hope so. Yeah. Right. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Mary Beth. So, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. Japanese is always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer today is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.